Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Kevin Clark is president of the Ecclesial Schools Initiative. He has served as a classical school leader and teacher, and he trains aspiring classical teachers at the Templeton Honors College. His book, co-authored, is entitled The Liberal Arts Tradition, A Philosophy of Christian Classical Education. That's our topic today. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Clark. Thank you. Very glad to be here. First of all, just let's give the credit. Tell us who's your co-author. Uh, let's include him here. Ravi Scott Jane is my co-author and a friend and colleague for the last 20 years. Okay, okay. Take us back. Uh, what are the origins of the Christian classical liberal arts tradition? Um, the origins of the, of the of the book as we wrote it, right? No, the, the uh, yes, tradition origin. itself. Oh, the, the origin of the uh, Christian classical liberal arts tradition itself. Yeah, that's... Yes, yes. Um, that, that would almost be a book in itself, tracing the history uh, of how it started. I, I think you have um, multiple on-ramps of, of different uh, Christians. There were different orientations, East and West, in the church, but it's mainly church fathers who took their education sometimes from uh, the classical pagan world, and they put them to service for the church. And at, at some point, I, I think... Uh, probably, you know, 5th, 6th century, I, I like to, you know, if you, historians always pick a random, you know, um, activity. I think Cassiodorus giving his library to a local monastery, really, that's the, the beginning of the Christian liberal arts tradition where you have this, this bringing together of pagan learning um, and put in service of Christian faith and mission. There it is. And that's a, th- thank you. That, that's actually a nice compact uh, uh, definition and, and an explanation for the inclusion, right, of of pagan materials in in a Christian curriculum. Uh, One of the things that you do early on is you raise intellectual virtue right at the top. You put it ahead of skills and knowledge. Uh, Why do you do that? Isn't it all just about skills these days? (laughs) I think for, for most educators, it really is about skills and about outcomes. Uh, but in our tradition, the end of the thing is the most important, uh, to paraphrase Thomas Aquinas, right? And so if the entire purpose of, of education really is intellectual formation, it's going to profoundly influence even the earliest days, the very beginnings. And so we thought we had to set that straight um, at the beginning to have, like, what are, what are we doing essentially as teachers? Even if we're going to have most of our day might be teaching things like phonics or arithmetic um, or grammar, uh, the, the goal is intellectual virtue. You know, you you speak, you have a term poetic knowledge early on. Those those two terms don't don't often go together. What is that? Why is it so important 
And I have a follow-up question on that, but but tell us, first of all, about that term. What do you mean by that? Yeah, what do I mean by poetic knowledge? And I, I think there's there's wonderful work done by James Taylor. He has a book, actually, he published Poetic Knowledge that came out back in the 90s. But it's the knowledge that comes from, uh, as the etymology of poetic from poesis, from doing, from making, uh, a, a pre-critical knowledge that you have that doesn't come through uh, explanation or through reading, but mm. through the right kind of experience. And uh, I, I think it's so important. I, I think of C.S. Lewis describing his own work of trying to reconcile reason and imagination that were unfortunately separated from one another during the Enlightenment, whether it's through Romanticism and rationalism, and to say that man is actually a rational and a poetic being together. And I think poetic knowledge is our way of starting the educational project that connects those things from the very beginning. Do you, I mean, the, the, the follow-up here is that when you talk about poetic knowledge, I mean, how important is actual poetry in building poetic knowledge? I think it's it's essential. It's um, it's the heart. It might be the ground that things, uh, the soil they spring from, and then also the uh, the fruit that the poetic knowledge uh, produces. Uh, but it's one part of a larger fabric, though, as well. Even if it's if it's a structural part, an essential part, I, I think it's. The rest that happens, um, the, the kind of learning that would happen as we read in the scriptures, when you walk along the way, when you sit at the table, uh, when you have, have conversations, when you work uh, together, when you build things together, there's a knowledge and a know-how. And uh, it's more of a character of soul or a habit of heart and mind that's formed, a, a capacity, uh, more maybe in the, uh, the classical meaning of the word intellect, the ability to receive. Uh, not just the ability to, um, uh, to, to discourse or, or to reason. You know, I don't think people today realize poetry has disappeared so much from the ordinary lives of most people. I don't think they realize how, how important poetry was in the ordinary lives of of Americans up until actually recent recent decades. Do you do you see the the impact of the disappearance of poetry from from the lives of the young, from the public square, from the entertainment world. Uh, it just, it's just, boy, it's gone, and it didn't used to be gone. Right, absolutely. I think the poets were, I think that's the reason why the ancient world, the poets are the teachers. When you think about, that's just not a, not a pagan idea either. You think about where do you learn about God in scriptures? It's through the Psalms. It's through the, uh, the liturgy of the church, which is almost all poetry. And interestingly enough, this is a place, hmm. a profoundly ecumenical statement. You think that's just true. It's not that it ought to be true. You think about where people learn the things they ought to love, uh, especially the highest things, the best things. It's still learned in poetry. It's just a lot of the poetry is, is poor. <laughs> it might be crass. Hmm. It's not well done. And it's in, um, it breaks with, uh, with the tradition, the, the kind of great um, tradition that we have that, unfortunately, our, our entire society has broken itself from. How important? I, I'm I'm pursuing this poetry. Sure, I love it. <laughs> really, but how how important to poetic knowledge is poetic form? Uh, that that is, you know, a uh, uh, regular stanza, rhyme, uh, various uh, uh, verse length. Are these all sort of essential here, or can it just be free verse? <laughs> no. I yeah, yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't think it'd only be free verse. I think free verse is kind of like 
uh, what wine is for a wine enthusiast. I, I think that you already have to have a thorough love of poetry before you're introduced and, and, and can believe believe that. No, I, I think even before what we might consider great art poetry, I think the nursery rhyme. Uh, Mother Goose was a wonderful first teacher for a couple centuries of Americans and built a poetic imagination, a capacity yeah. for language, uh, an ear for language. Give me someone who had nursery rhymes and and the, the great poems that came from like a child's garden of vers um, verses. Yeah, that, well, I remember that. that volume. We, we all had that. Right. 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 And, and, you know, kids love rhyme. They love structure. They love the form. I, I like the way you put a poetic knowledge is sort of a pre, pre-rational. It's not irrational, yep. but it's, it's just, just sort of, sort of a, a building block, uh, uh, the, the, out of which the, the, the more rational knowledge, the more advanced knowledge can, can come. And I, I think I, I would say to, well, what would you say to parents right now about poetry and their kids? Before I answer that question, I want to say something that you said, that um, poetic knowledge is not irrational. I think rationality without poetry is irrational. And I think mm -hmm. the history of uh, post-enlightenment through post-modernity proves that. That when you have a culture without poetry and only have a mind, uh, or C.S. Lewis and Men Without Chess, when you have only the head separated uh, from the belly, you get all kinds of irrationalities. And so maybe what I would say to, say to parents is that the most significant thing that you could do would be to, I, I think of um, hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, which the apostle recommended uh, as the, the means of building up the faith and the, and the encouragement of people. That would be the most significant thing you can do with your children is read poetry yeah. with them, recite poetry with them, share poetry with them. I, I think of my own children. The first time I was with my, my daughter, who's now my oldest, is 18, walking at, with her at two years old and seeing a rainbow and reciting the, the famous Wordsworth, my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. And yeah. I, I wanted to have her connect that experience of joy that she had with the words of the poet that I, that I hope would form her imagination and uh, carry along with her her whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would I think, you know, sitting down, reading with your children, you know, doing the poems, having the books right there, lying, lying with your child in bed at the end of the day and it's time to go to go to sleep and it's, it's quiet and you've got the book there and turning those pages and reading out loud again, those those lines. And, and again, the versification is it's almost uh, affirming, it's comforting. Uh, it, it gives it gives it gives structure right yes. to to life to to the world, and and I think that the joy that you see with children and 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 actually you you I've said this before but parents should read to their kids past the age at which kids can read on their own. Certainly, keep reading. You know, as long as your child will will listen to you. <laughs> if you teenager, my son, uh, uh, as long as they'll listen, keep reading. Absolutely. To, to to your child, keep building it. All right, let's turn to music. Music. You you speak of music, uh, or the study of it as actually you use the term foundational, right? To the cultivation of intellectual virtue. Uh, now I, I presume you're talking about you're talking about heavy metal. <laughs> you're talking is that is that correct? How did you know? Right. Yeah. The uh, well, again, it's it's like poetic knowledge, where poetry is this this crystallized, distilled form of the larger category of poetic knowledge. I think the same thing with musical education. Now, music is certainly 
um, at the heart, what we'd understand is instrumental or vocal music now. And certainly much of the things that were taught in this ancient category of musical education were taught by singing. Uh, again, coming to the experience of our own tradition as Christians, how much of the early education, I think I mentioned Thomas Aquinas before, he's very interesting how his early education was all musical, uh, learning to sing the Psalms, to chant uh, the, the Gospels, and, and things like that is the foundation of later, later study. But um, it's also just that it's the knowledge of the world not understood critically again. So it's, it's in the poetic mode, if I can speak that way. So there would be a musical education that would be the music of, a, of astronomy before there's the liberal art of astronomy. One would be um, going and looking at the stars and learning the constellations and the stories and the, the knowledge of the phases of the moon that comes simply from observing. The other would be coming through tracing out mathematical models uh, to map the, the movement of the heavenly bodies. That would happen later on in, an, in a critical way. But again, mm -hmm. connected intimately to that, that awakening of wonder and imagination that happens in the musical education. Yeah. And music, I mean, it, 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 it like poetry, it, it teaches a formal sense of things. Right? It does. You, 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 you've, got, you've got structure, you've got harmony, you, you have tempo. And in a way, it's all, you know, and, and unless you've got a six-year-old who, who likes, you know, Schoenberg <laughs> uh, or, or what, you know, whatever. Uh, right. It's an order it's a, it's a, that exists outside of yourself that you get to be brought into. You know, again, I want to say about poetry, children love poetry. It, um, they love poetry. The ecclesial schools, we teach, um, we have three terms during the year. In each of the term, there's a Shakespeare play beginning in kindergarten that we, uh, hmm. we read with the students. And children, even they just delight in the sound of the language, the cadence, uh, the rhyme, even if they don't understand the meaning. And of course, as they, as they um, age through and learn more, they, they understand more of what's happening. But just the, the language itself is delightful. And the same thing with music. There's an order, there's a harmony, there's a form that informs the mind and it enchants. Again, thinking of the etymology of that word, enchanting, uh, yeah. weaves a spell, so to speak. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me step out for a second. Tell you, you're head of the Ecclesial Schools Initiative. Yes. What does that, what does that do? Ecclesial Schools Initiative is, is taking classical Christian education, making it accessible to, uh, to families who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford private education by partnering with local churches that want to make their space available so that we could plant a school and lower uh, the cost of tuition to really make it affordable to any, any family that wants a Christian classical education for their children. Hmm. I'm always asking about the classical numbers. Is the demand growing oh absolutely um exponentially it's growing i mean we we've seen it and and since we launched this um initiative in 2020 i think um, i was just speaking to one of the state representatives here in florida who's behind some of the step up for students um, and uh florida scholarship choice scholarship legislation saying that the demand for classical education might be the single greatest area of demand they see in private education in the state and in charter hmm. school education as well uh, and then, and I always ask uh, people, to what do you attribute that rising demand in 2023? Yeah, you know, I think that there's, um, people are, are have become aware, I, I think for a long time, it's astounding to me, I've been in Christian education for over 20 years, 
that people haven't noticed that the publicly available options are not necessarily working in concert with the church or with the goals of their family. But I think we turned a corner as a culture after the, uh, the, the pandemic and some of the people's, it, it opened parents' eyes I mean, in some ways just having the, the Zoom screen open in your, your living room and hearing what was happening in class and realizing that the students aren't learning about the natural world the way that we think they ought to be. They're not reading great, great books. They're not having great conversations about ideas. They're, the word truth is curiously absent in conversations with teachers. We don't talk about what's morally good or what's right or what's just. Um, and and I, I think that there, there's a, a longing for that among parents, even they couldn't articulate it for themselves. And then they come to schools, classical schools, and people are talking about truth, goodness, and beauty. They're talking about habits of heart and mind, about, about wisdom and virtue in these these ideas that are, are bigger than themselves when it seems like so much of the world were collapsed in upon um, ourselves and our own experience. And, and my own personal experience with, with parents is that they can't really articulate why they want something different. But when they hear poetry, literally, when they hear children singing in school, they know there's something here that they want for their own children and they actually want for themselves as well. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Okay, back to the book, which I should say, the book is kind of a guidebook. It is. For, for parents and, and for educators in what this Christian liberal arts tradition is about. From music, let's turn to something physical. You, you say the same goes for gymnastics. Gymnastics teaches intellectual virtue. How does that happen? Or, or it supports it. Yeah, I think of the, the, the quip, okay. you can call it a quip from Aristotle in the Ethics, where he talks about the virtue of courage and how a person who hasn't gone through strenuous physical exercise can't be courageous because there's a certain physical capacity. And, it's, um, and maybe he, would, he didn't use this word, but it would be a poetic knowledge that having physical adversity and having to grow strong through resistance allows you to exercise that morally, or at least it can if it's shaped properly. I think we say that in the book. It's, I, I think that's what's so saddening for us when we see people who are wonderful athletes or who are physically accomplished, who are moral failures. And you think the person has used so much discipline, so much self-control. They've delayed gratification to achieve so many wonderful things, yet they fall to seemingly simple vices. And you think that's a tragedy. That's, uh, that's out of proportion. Um, the body and the soul ought to be more connected than that. Hmm. Do all of your schools... Uh, I, I, are, are most of your schools elementary grade? Uh, K through 8 right now, yeah. Years? So kind of through traditional elementary and middle school. But you, you try to work in a portion of each day for gymnastics type exercises. Yeah. So if you if you came to school at the ecclesial school, I'm here on the campus of St. Albans Church in Oviedo, Florida. If you came to the ecclesial school, your day would begin with the um, with matins, with the office of morning prayer. That would um, be with singing the Psalms and the canticles, reading the scriptures. 
it, and uh, saying of prayers. You would move to recitation, which is a musical approach to all the disciplines of the school through chants and jingles and songs. Uh, there would be time in the garden each day learning how to use tools and, um, and grow living things. And then there would be, we call it GE, uh, gymnastic ed class, and the idea of getting stronger, faster, more flexible. But always framed with um, the affirmation of God having made your body so that you can love and serve your neighbor. And um, becoming strong, becoming flexible, becoming balanced is a way that we get to live full lives in order to love and serve our neighbors. Okay. The sciences are covered, the math. You, you, you actually go, you, you talk about Pythagoras and, and Plato. You actually refer to a phrase that caught me, quote, the ancient conviction of the transcendence of number. Hmm. Well, what was that about? <laughs> Yeah, that there's uh, that by numbering things, we are um, we're understanding the, uh, the and you start to sound mystical when you talk about it, the harmony uh, of the created universe, that uh, math isn't some sort of just merely imminent um, understanding of the world that we have that helps us get things done and move you know heavy objects far distances. But by by understanding the world mathematically, we're actually coming in contact with what's real with um, with what is, uh, so to speak, that, that exists outside of us and that our, our mind, our reason has to be conformed to if we're going to be wise, to speak in a way that uh, Plato might speak. No. Yeah. So this idea, yeah, transcendence. You know that so understanding math is, as an, I think we understand it through poetry. I think we, we experience aesthetic transcendence. At least that's what we, we have that in our culture now. But I think, I mean, if you talk to a mathematician, uh, people who aren't just trying to pass tests or get SAT scores, but people who love math, they'll say that that's how they, they contemplate the beauty of reality. You know, ma mathematicians will talk in very almost mystical oh, yeah. tones about, about numbers and about a proof, let's say. It, it's a very, uh, transcendence is not at all foreign to, to, to mathematicians when they're talking about these things. And, uh, you know, Kurt Gödel had a real mystical side to him, for 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 instance. I think all the great mathematicians do. I mean, that and that, that's a yeah, that that's interesting. And they'll talk about they'll see the connection of truth and beauty as well. I mean, how often do you hear about a beautiful proof from a mathematician? And they yeah. want to say that this is true, or it works, or the function um, operates. It's it's beautiful. It's a work of art. It's a work of art. Yeah. So, so you know, the simplicity. I mean, my goodness, the insight. Indeed. In the astronomy section, you, you actually go back to the ancients and, and Copernicus and Kepler and all, all, all those guys. Do students read much of the actual writings of those, uh, those old, old dudes? <laughs> they do. And this has been one of the great contributions of Ravi Jain. Uh, he taught a course when we, we worked together at a classical school for years called Scientific Revolutions. And it followed the um, the unfolding story of modern science and uh, and the basic, what eventually became the calculus, uh, the modern mathematics as it unfolded through the writings, through the experiments, through the ponderings of these uh, these great thinkers. And yeah, you'd have them read uh, journal entries. You'd have them read sections of Principia Mathematica from Newton. They would eventually, if they stayed in the two year course, they would read um, some of the. Um, Einstein's um, papers on a theory of general relativity. 
Yeah. And they're remarkably, if you start, if you follow the unfolding of the story, they're remarkably accessible. I think that's the part that he was able to prove when people said, these are, these are specialist documents. He said, no, no, not at all. Mm. I mean, there, there are difficult things, obviously. But if you start yeah. following their unfolding train of thought, you can understand uh, what they're saying. It's really exciting yeah. for students. Another term that comes up uh, along with knowledge is wisdom. What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Yeah, there's a, a wonderful uh, phrase that, that Ravi found in his reading of Maximus the Confessor, where he says, knowledge becomes wisdom in service. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we, we simplify that or we, we take that as a, maybe just the surface of it, that um, knowledge or um, wisdom is knowledge put into practice. But I, I love the way that Maximus sees, no, it's actually when you understand your knowledge and skills um, coming into uh, serving the, the good of your neighbor, of the community, that's when you become wise or you can become wise. Because yeah. it's, uh, you know, Aristotle would talk about wisdom as being a knowledge of the causes. But I, I think that's, that's really what happens when we understand that we don't just have um, just theoretical knowledge, but it's rounded out practically. Um, and then also when it's in service, it's also understanding its purpose, its telos, it's um, why we're doing what we're doing and to what end. Yeah. Wonder plays a big role. You mentioned that uh, a moment ago, and you want these kids to pursue their wonder. There's another trait that you wish to instill and that is piety, hmm. right? Piety. And you actually say that piety isn't exclusively a Christian virtue, that the pagans had their piety as, as well. And you want to teach the kids that too. Right, right. right. Yeah. So why, why, how, how do you teach a six-year-old piety? <laughs> uh, I think it begins with, uh, with, with habits with manners. I know that that sounds very, very boring, maybe prudish to say, but if I love it, who are able to, to, to love their neighbor, people who are able to, um, to, to love and fear God, who are able to honor their father and mother. It begins with learning how to, with our, we, we, we name for our children again at the ecclesial school that respect, attention, and obedience are the three fundamental things you're learning. Um, here and that's how you, um, you show respect to your, to your, to your parents, to your teachers, uh, we learn how to become reverent. And so it begins with practices, usually shared embodied practices. Um, we understand that piety, is, it's not just the feelings, the, the pious sentiments the children might have when they come into chapel in the morning for morning prayer, but it's also we, we come in respectfully. It, it's how we order our bodies. It's how we, we sing in tune with one another. We participate. And just all this entire system of responses and shared practices that we hope to build up through habit with a view to becoming uh, becoming pious people who yeah. have a, not just a knowledge of what they ought to do, but a moral sense of oughtness to do those things. Uh, another side question. Does the Ecclesial Schools Initiative work with existing schools to help them maybe with curriculum or some of these practices? We, we have not yet. Uh, we've been um, a, a school planting um, a school planning network, and we're just on two campuses uh, now. I think uh, maybe uh, getting involved in some, I mean, with, with the field growing, that, you know, a lot of these schools are adding new classes, they're opening new schools, they should look wherever they can for, uh, 
for guidance and, and, and support. One of the things that you speak of is education as discipleship. Hmm. Uh, and you, you, you actually raise sort of, sort of wonder about uh, those parents who want their kids to succeed they want achievement. They they want success. They want the top school, the top school, you know, the Ivy League admission for their child. Do you offer them anything on, on that grounds? I mean, can you say, look, we are teaching intellectual virtue, and these create intellectual habits, good study habits, good focus. Uh, good reading. I mean, are, are, are these? I, don't, I know you don't want to go utilitarian with, with these things, but do you? Do you think it's all there? You know, I, I think it is. I mean, at least, at least, I, I think it was in some places. The university is this uh, um, ever-changing uh, place. We've seen uh, drastic changes over the last few years, but the kinds of virtues that a classical education can foster that you mentioned the students who know how to read know how to think know how to ask good questions uh people who i, I hope have learned um, a disposition of humility um, especially if you come in contact with great ideas and great thinkers and real things that exist outside of your head you it, it's more difficult to take yourself as seriously as the person who has all answers and, and all knowledge and and i think that's that goes from, um, from thinkers as diverse as Plato and St. Augustine to Aquinas and John Calvin. They would all tell you that the chief intellectual virtue is humility that you need, mm. that, that the scholar uh, must have. And so I think that would, that would serve students really well, um, knowing I, I, you've spent time teaching in university. I've taught uh, university students. If I had students who knew how to read well and knew, uh, knew how to write well to say what they mean... <laughs> Uh, with with a with a sense of economy of expression and uh, at least something approaching the kind of word choice we would like to have while reading their text, that would be a delight. And you think of what they mm -hmm. there's no limit on what they'd be able to do. Um, I, I am reminded always, and I'd love to see someone put this together in a talk. There's a, a wonderful line in the Confessions of Saint Augustine where he's talking about um, going to Carthage for school and. It's this scene right after he had left the baths and he said, my father was saying I was developing into a young man. And it was he was more or less saying, ah, oh, my, my boy is becoming a really good looking young man. And he said, but then there's my mother. And he has this phrase where he says she was still dwelling in the suburbs of Babylon at that time. All she thought about was my career, not about the formation of my soul. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to give a talk to parents of uh, prospective college students. Are we still dwelling in the suburbs of Babylon when we think about our children? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Worrying about yeah. their career more than we worry about the formation of their soul. And yet, if a person has a well-formed soul, um, a knowledge of the truth, and a love of God, um, what could we add to that that would increase anything for them? And what could you take away from them that would cause them to suffer loss? Nothing. Yeah. There's much more in the book. And I said it, it, it is part guidebook. You have reading lists uh, at the end. You have talk about curriculum. You talk about pedagogy you know, an incarnational pedagogy, for instance. But for now, the book is The Liberal Arts Tradition, A Philosophy of Christian Classical Education. Kevin Clark, thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. It's very good to be with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, 
and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.